But let's get our Bibles out, get ready to dig into the Word tonight. We're going to continue our, we're going to continue our study of the book of Revelation. And I'd love for you to open your Bible to Revelation chapter 3. We took a week off from this study last week because we just meditated on the cross and, and uh, all it meant to, to really share the gospel in its purest form, to, to share it in its, in its simplicity yet its greatness and its awe. And to know that, that uh, the gospel doesn't need any uh, fancy fixing up. It is, a, it is the best news the world's ever heard. It is the message of reconciliation. And when we are entrusted with that word, there's something powerful with that. And as we move on back into Revelation, um, we're going to pick up where we left off in the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3. And of course, just as a reminder, just as an update, if you weren't here, let me catch you up. We talked about how the church in Philadelphia, uh, you understand this is a church that's in a city that's had a couple of major earthquakes and when they had these major earthquakes, a lot of their, their uh, major buildings, temples, government structures uh, crumbled, were destroyed. And Caesar himself actually rebuilt, the, the Rome paid to have these buildings rebuilt and uh, restored a lot of these things, which wasn't what they did for everybody. But they did this, and because they did this, the city of Philadelphia greatly revered and honored Caesar. And in fact, they named, you know, they, they picked some of their gods and goddesses based on that. But uh, this was a time, as, as you know, if you've been with us through this study, this was a time where the emperor Domitian was, was demanding that people would worship him and honor him as a god. So when you belonged to the synagogue and you were part of the Jewish population, the Jews had been given in most places, not all, but most, they'd been given an exemption. And if you were on the synagogue's list, if you were on their name, if you were in their books, you were given an exemption where you didn't have to claim Caesar is Lord because Rome did not want to anger the Jewish population. They had tried before. Uh, there was one famous scene where uh, a Roman general brought his banners and his armies through and they're going through Judea and on their banners are the image of Caesar and on their banners are the images uh, of these, these men that they honor and that they're, they're under. And the Jewish elders came out and met, met them in the road and said, you can't go through our city with these banners. That's, that's idolatry. That's an image. We won't have that. And the Romans said, well, watch us. And the elders knelt down and put their necks on the road and said, okay, you're going to have to kill us first. So that was, uh, they, at that point, the general said, okay, we're going to take our stuff down. We don't want to fight here because he knew that's, that's the edge of rebellion. These guys, the, the Jewish population in Judea was, and even outside of Judea, was kind of always on the edge of rebellion because they were not happy being suppressed by the Romans. Even when Jesus walked the earth, he had the zealots that were ready to rise up and some expected Jesus to bring out that violent uprising. So by the time we get to this day that we're reading in Revelation chapter 3, the city of Philadelphia has honored Caesar, has made worship of him part of their daily lives. However, if you were on the synagogue list, you got an exemption, you were left out of that. But what happened is that 
uh, we see at the beginning of this, this, this letter to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus says, I know that you've been persecuted. I know that there are some who say they're part of the synagogue. But he says they're part of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews, but they're not. So he's talking about the people, I mean, most of these Christians that have received Jesus came from the synagogue. They were Jewish people who received Jesus as the Messiah, but they were heavily opposed by the local synagogue. And the local synagogue took their names off the list, opening them up wide open to Roman persecution. And so as they're in this time of persecution, as they're feeling cast out of the synagogue, cast out of their families, cast out of their social circles, cast out of business in many cases, what does Jesus say to them? The door's been slammed shut in their face. You're not welcome here anymore. Stay out of the synagogue. You're not part of us anymore. And Jesus says, I have set before you an open door. He says, I've got the key of David. I can open the doors and I can shut the doors. I have the right to say who comes into my kingdom. And he says, I've placed before you an open door that no man can shut. Amen. He tells them that they, they have a little power and they've held to it. So he says, go hold fast to what you have so that no one can steal your crown. And as we move into this last part of the letter that Jesus is dictating to John to write to the church in Philadelphia, actually to write to the messenger or the leader of that church so that he can communicate that because he says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, and you may have heard us say this before, but angel in the Greek, angelos, doesn't always mean a divine creature. It just means a messenger. So in this case, he's not saying that God, Jesus isn't writing a letter to an angel. He doesn't need to do that. He can just talk to him. He's writing a letter to a, a messenger, the guy who's going to bring this message to that church. And he says, say this to them. And we're getting to the end. And you know that every time we've read these letters, there's been a common pattern. Jesus tells them what they're doing right. Sometimes he tells them what they need to correct. In the case of the church in Philadelphia, he doesn't give them any criticism. He just says, you're doing well. Here's what you're doing. Hold on fast to that. But at the end, he always says to the one that overcomes. And he tells them, this is what's going to happen. When you overcome, this is what's going to happen. This is what's waiting for you. This is the prize. This is the reward. Because so many times when we're stuck in the struggle of hanging on to something, it's easy if you don't have your eyes on the prize, if you don't have your eyes on Jesus, if you don't have your eyes looking forward, to be overwhelmed. The Bible says that Jesus, in fact, it says take our example from Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising or, or, or not counting it as anything, despising the shame. So Jesus endured the worst thing you'd have to endure. He endured it for the joy set before him. So if we're talking about endurance and we're talking to believers that are this close to feeling like they want to give up, what do you do? You tell them what they're aiming for. You tell them what's ahead of them. You say, this is the prize, guys. For the joy set before you, hang on, because this is just a drop in the bucket. As Paul said, this is not worthy. These present sufferings are not worthy to be compared. And in fact, they're producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So this stuff is temporary. This stuff is eternal, right? So, he, so here he picks up in this, and, and I want you to turn with me to Revelation 3 if you're not already there. He says, I am coming quickly. This is verse 11. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown or your reward. He who overcomes... I will make him, and of course we know 
When we say he, we're not, we're not just saying it's just to the men here. This is for all of us. To the one that overcomes, he's going to make them a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He goes on and he says in verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, that part's directed towards us. If we have an ear, we may not be from Philadelphia back there 2,000 years ago, but we have an ear to hear. So we're supposed to listen to what Jesus is saying to this church. But let me just be honest with you. If I can be honest, I know I'm going to be honest the whole time. It's not like I've been lying to you up to this point, but let me be transparent if I can. There is big chunks of my life in Christ that I would read this last little bit of to him who overcomes and know on some level that these are good things, but they weren't things that really had an effect on me because I really didn't understand them. So when he says, I'm going to make you a pillar in the house of my God, I'm going to write a name on you. I'm going to write three names on you, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my new name. I would read that and go, okay, that's probably good. But I really wouldn't think about it too much because it just didn't seem to have any effect on me right now. You know, it just doesn't seem to have a big effect on me. Okay, so I'm going I'm to get some sort of tattoo with three names on it. Like, I mean, I, like, you're going to write these things on me. Okay, I, I, all right. Uh, okay, so is that, you know, is that, that someday in heaven I'm going to have these names on me? Okay, well, you know, that's nice. But here's my approach. Here's my approach to Scripture now. When something seems important to Jesus, I want it to be important to me. Simple, right? Seems like this is a big deal to Jesus. Jesus, these are words in red. He's the one saying this. He says, here's the reward for overcoming. So if I just skip over that and go, I don't really understand that. I'm doing myself a disservice. I'm not really honoring the words of Christ as I should. I'm probably missing something pretty big. If I just skip over these things, and maybe you've done that same thing too. Nobody's going to admit it tonight. But hey, I'm admitting it. There's plenty of these times I would just glaze over it and go, it's good to overcome. That would be about the level of my comprehension. I guess it's good to overcome. Jesus is using a bunch of, you know, you might say like the disciples said, you're speaking in riddles. I don't know why you speak this way. But he's not. This is something that's very important. Of course, it helps to have some cultural context. So you might say, why does this mean something to the people in Philadelphia back then? But it definitely means something to us today. So what I've tried to do in my life now is, if some, like I said, if something seems important to Jesus, I want it to be important to me, and I'm not going to leave it on the shelf. Sometimes you, sometimes you don't get everything right away, and that's okay. Jesus, will, the Lord will take you through the Holy Spirit. He'll take you from elementary truths to, and, and build on that and build on that and build on that. Some things you, don't, you just don't understand everything right away. But I want to value what he values. So we ask, okay, God, why is it important to me? Because it is important to me. So why is it important to me that you're telling me you're going to put your name on me? That you're going to put God's name on me. You're going to put the name of the city on me. You're going to put your name on me that no one knows but you. Why is that important to me right now? Because whether you know it or not, I mean, just, let's just take it at face value. Jesus is not writing to a group of theologians. He's not writing to a bunch of people who are doing their doctrine of ministry. He's writing to normal people like you and me. 
So maybe it's not so far beyond everybody's comprehension. Maybe it's just going to require us to think eternally rather than just so, you know, everything has to have an, a, a direct practical application tonight. And if it doesn't, then I don't listen. When I read this, the more you dig into it, and the more you, you just look at it at face value even, the more God unveils why this is important. Why is it important that you bear his name right now and in the age to come? Why is it an honor that he'd put his name on you? Remember, this is a group of people who've been kicked out. I mean, kicked out of their culture in many senses. They've been excluded. They've been pushed out. You guys aren't part of us anymore. You used to bear our name. You used to be one of us. Because since the beginning, we've always divided ourselves on tribal lines, haven't we? We're looking, everyone is looking for where they belong. It's the great, it's the great struggle in life is to find where I fit, to find where I belong, to find who I belong with. And we spend a lot of time and energy trying to make that happen, even when we don't want to admit it. Even if your identity is a rebel, you're going to try to find the other rebels. Remember when I went to school, that was when, you know, the, the counterculture goth movement first came in. And I remember, you know, there were kids in my school who were like, we don't conform. We're nonconformists. But they all wore the exact same outfit, which was the nonconformist outfit. <laughs> we all wear black eyeliner. They all, you know, we, we wear the black trench coats. We don't conform to your society, man. But they're conforming to themselves. I mean, you're conforming to something. So we're all trying to find where am I fit? Where do I belong? And we'll alter ourselves to make ourselves belong somewhere, won't we? We'll, we, we, you know, when, when you feel like you belong, in fact, you know, um, both Tia and I, we had parents that, that came out of the hippie movement, you know, and, and uh, some to greater degree or other. Right, Mom? You'd say you were a hippie at the, uh, on some level. To whatever degree a, a hippie could be. Jesus, you know, my dad was less of a hippie. He was a pastor to hippies, though. When, you know, when the Jesus people movement first came, my dad was pastoring those, and he had some great stories of that adventure. But, you know, my, my wife, same thing. I, you talk to her parents, and, uh, you know, I remember her mom saying it very clearly. These are the people we identified with, and we became like them because they accepted us. It wasn't like they're looking around and going, these people think exactly like us. These people look exactly like us. No, first somebody accepted them and then they said, okay, we're going to be like you because we feel like we fit. These are the first people that just opened their arms wide and loved us. And so, hey, this is our group now. And it's a snare at times, isn't it? The Bible says a fear of people is a snare. Sometimes it can be a nice thing to belong. God called us to belong. God called us to family. God called us to a house made of living stones. So that is a God-given, inserted into our DNA code that we are meant to find where we belong. But that's meant to find where we belong first in Him. And the rest of the world is trying to find that place. Now imagine... If you will, that you are already, your government doesn't like you. You got soldiers walking the streets. They'll, if you give them half a chance, they'll arrest you for something. They'll hit you for something. 
You formerly, what you did have was, you know, say you were a Jewish uh, person in Philadelphia, which Philadelphia is not a Jewish city, but you belong to the minority Jewish population. And every, every time you went to synagogue, you felt like you were amongst your people. These are my people. We may feel like outsiders in this city, but when we come to synagogue and we're with family, these are our people. Now imagine if those people told you, get out. We don't want anything to do with you anymore. Your parents said, I have no son, I have no daughter, you're not mine anymore. There's all of a sudden this sense of, we, we don't, we're afloat, we're just, we're cast out. I don't belong. And Jesus is telling them, no, 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 here's the thing. If you will overcome, if you will, when you, when you see the other side of this, this is the other side. In fact, this is the reality now and the reality in the age to come is that I will put my name on you. You belong, first I'll put God's name on you because you belong to God. I'll put the name of my new city on you, which is the new Jerusalem. And he says, that's the city that you belong to. You know, in this day and age, if you were a Roman citizen, you had different rights than everybody else. In fact, if you were being assaulted on the road, all you had to yell out was Civicus Romanus, and a Roman soldier would put you on priority. They'd make sure you were taken care of. You might remember when Paul was being whipped without a trial, he's being beaten. And he brings it up later that you guys whipped me, arrested me, and beat me even though I was a Roman citizen, you did that without a trial. And the guy that did it, you know, the guy who was in charge, got real nervous. This is in Philippi. He got real nervous and real apologetic. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Mr. Paul, we'll let you go. And Paul said, if you did this, in, you beat me in public, you arrested me in public, you're going to say sorry in public. Well, why was that guy so nervous about beating Paul up? Because he didn't realize he was a Roman citizen. Which tells us if he was just a normal old guy from Tarsus, if he was just a normal old Jew from Jerusalem, if he was just a normal guy from Philippi, nice rhyme, <laughs> then, then they would have had a right to just arrest him and beat him without a trial. Can you imagine? But because he was a, a citizen of the city of Rome, because of his father. He had special privileges. He was a citizen. And citizens of Rome got treated different. Now imagine, Rome is just an earthly city. It's going to fall. If you go to Rome today, you don't say, what a city of great power. They say, the pizza's good. Nice sights to see. Let's go see uh, some broken down buildings. But you don't go and say, wow, this city has had its grip on the world for so many years. No, it, it doesn't anymore. Because all empires crumble, but the kingdom of God is eternal. So the benefit of being a citizen of Rome was a temporary benefit. But being a citizen of the new Jerusalem, as Paul said, that's our mother city. That's our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're not from here. Peter said we are aliens and strangers. And because of this, when he says, I'm going to put my the name of my city on you. He's saying you are a citizen of this place and you have the rights of a citizen. You belong here. First and foremost, you belong to God. Then you belong in this city. And he says, he says remember what he said. He said, you're going to be a pillar in my temple. And he says, you won't go in and out anymore. You're going to live in my presence. You're going to live in my city and no one's going to kick you out of my city. 
You're not going to go out from there. He says, you never, ever will go out from there. It doesn't read as passionate in the English, but in the original Greek, it says, you will never, ever go out from that city again. You're a pillar in the temple. You know, just a side track. In the temple of Solomon, there were two grand pillars. One called Boaz. One called Yachin. One meant he is, our, he is the strength. And one said he, will, he is the established. He will establish this. These giant pillars were decorative, but they were also supportive. And God's telling you, if you when you overcome, I'm going to make you a pillar in my temple. Now, now when we look at this, this new city, this new Jerusalem, he says, it's not like the old Jerusalem. This is a new city. In fact, if you dig into the Greek in, 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 in this letter, in this book that John wrote down, when he talks about the earthly city of Jerusalem, he uses the Greek word for Jerusalem. But when he talks about the new Jerusalem, he uses the Greek spelling, but he uses the Hebrew, old Hebrew pronunciation of that city. Does that make sense? So the city itself, he uses the new Greek name for it. It still sounds like Jerusalem, but it's spelled different. It's slightly different. But when he talks about the city of God, he calls it by the old Hebrew Jerusalem. He uses the Greek letters because his letter's written in Greek, but it's still a different word because, in fact, what he's saying is this is the original, this is the holy, this is what God intended. And he says when this city is from, this city is not a, not a city built with hands, it's a city above. And there are times where he talks about the temple, but there's, at the end of the book of Revelation, he says in this city, there's no building that's a temple. There is no physical temple. For we are the temple. And God's presence is in his people. In fact, in the description he gives, in the description that Jesus paints for us of this new city, he says there's no need for a sun. There's no need for any other lights because he himself is the light of the city. Isn't that an amazing picture? The city is lit up. There's no shadows. There's nothing. It's all light. You know, when we, when we see light, it comes from one direction. And if, you, if something covers it, it's dark. If you stand here, there's a shadow because, because the light's coming from there and you're standing in the way of the light, so behind you is darkness. But he says in that city, there will be no shadows. There will be no other lights because his light literally, it's not just, it's not just like it's coming from one source. Even though it, he is the light, that light's going to fill everything. There will be no shadows, will be no darkness. He says, you're going to be a pillar. And a pillar was something that looked beautiful. But it also served a purpose. It was, it, was, it was valuable. It was unshakable. Listen, they're from a city that's had some major earthquakes where things were busted down. This, he says, this isn't going anywhere. This is permanent. You belong in the temple. You belong to God. You belong to this city. And then he says, you belong to Christ, and I'm going to give you the name that even you don't know right now. Remember in Philippians, it says that when Jesus died, became obedient even to the point of death, and when he was resurrected and glorified, it says that God gave him a name which is above every name. Gave him this new name, and he says, I'm going to put that new name on you. 
You understand what that means? You ever see Toy Story? <laughs> you didn't think I was going there, did you? My son's got like Woody from Toy Story, and he's got Buzz too. And when you look on the bottom of those little toys, they're just like in the movie. They got Andy scrawled on their foot because they belong to Andy. And that's that belonging to Andy. It, you know, these toys belong to this kid, and that's not like a, a slavery thing. That's not like a, a, a bad, like, we wish we could get away. In fact, if you watch the movies, the movies are all about them trying to get back to Andy because they love Andy, and they know they belong to Andy, and they know they belong with Andy, so they're always trying to get back to Andy. This is a sense of who we are all our life. We've been trying to figure out where we belong. And really, the question is less, where do you belong? Even though, thank God, he put the name of his city on us. The question is more, to whom do you belong? If you look at the one human who did it right, the one human who mastered it, it's Jesus Christ. How did he walk the earth? When someone challenged him, did he say, like when he had the Pharisees confront him in John chapter 8 and, and throw slander at him and throw all this stuff at him, do you see him puffing his chest up and say, you know what, guys, I could do miracles right now. I could call down fire on your town. You guys don't know how much power I have. No. Do you know what he just comes back with? I'm of my father. Over and over again, he defines himself, I belong to my father. I'm from him. You're not. That's why you don't get what I'm saying. In fact, the, 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 the defining points in his ministry are these moments like when this voice comes from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That is a major point in Jesus' ministry. And Jesus says, Father, glorify yourself. And, and he's, he's understanding that everything he is is all wrapped up in who the Father is. Jesus had the firmest sense of belonging that, that any of us have ever had. You could never make Jesus doubt I mean, really, did, did he look like he was insecure in any way? Listen, if Jesus were insecure, <laughs> there'd be some people lying dead on the floor who challenged him at the wrong times, right? I mean, if Jesus were insecure, either that or he would have quit ministry a long time ago because all of his life he was being challenged on who he was. Even his own family challenged him. Remember that moment where his mom and his brothers show up? And they're like, you know, come out. And his mom was like his greatest cheerleader at the beginning. But even she's kind of having doubts about, you know, his place and who he is. And it says, and even his own brothers, this is what the scripture says, even his own brothers did not believe in him. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus? Growing up with a perfect kid? His brothers just don't, they, they believe, I don't know what they believe, but they don't believe he is who he says he is. That's an amazing thought. And maybe that's a little relief for some of you who are so frustrated that your family doesn't get you. Well, neither did Jesus. <laughs> and he was perfect. <laughs> so, you know, if your family is just constantly saying, I don't know why you believe this. I think you're crazy. I don't know why you're doing it. Then, then take some solace. Jesus' own family thought the same way. His own hometown thought the same thing. But why didn't it phase him? Why didn't it derail him? He knew who he was. He knew who he belonged to. He knew where he belonged. He was not shaken off that. If we 
could value that sense of belonging in him. As Paul said, my life is hidden in Christ. My life is hidden in Christ. If you want to find me, you want to understand me, you want to see who I am, you have to look at him. That's the only way. That may seem like an arrogant statement. He said, it's no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. But that's not, that's a statement of surrender. That's saying my whole life makes no sense if you don't know who he is. I'm, I'm, I'm all about him. I have no life anymore outside of him. Which makes total sense. If we believe what we say we believe, that's, a, that's the only way to, to live, right? What doesn't make sense to me is to say you believe in a, in a grand designer and creator who created the universe, who created all of us, who knew us and formed us, who had a plan for each of us, who not only saw our sin and, 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 and didn't destroy the world, but he saved the world. And then to believe this and believe that this God is not distant, but he's intimately involved in the planet and in us. What would be crazy is if you believed all that and then following Jesus was your side project. That's what's weird to me. Right? I, I, I get that if you don't believe any of this. I get why you just be say, you know, hockey is my life if you don't really believe all this. But if you believe all this, I'm not trying to pick on hockey. God's got some great people playing hockey. But I mean like if your life is wrapped up in something else and that's your sole thing, that's the only thing that matters... That doesn't make sense if you believe what we say we believe. But if we believe what we say we believe, then he's the center and the core of everything. And whether you're, whether you're going to college or whether you're playing hockey or whether you work at the gas station, or whether you're a farmer, a rancher, an oil man, all of these things come from him and are centered around him. And you're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness because that's the only thing that really makes sense. Because you know where you belong. And you know who you belong to. When Paul talked to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. He tells them in chapter 2. You know God has things planned for you that you've never dreamed of. Your eyes couldn't see it. Your ear hasn't heard it. It has never entered the heart of man. But then he goes on. He says but God wants to reveal these things to you by his spirit. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit, so that you may know the things freely given to us by God, he says. Well, it gets you all excited that God wants to share his will with you, that God wants to reveal his heart to you by the Spirit to your spirit, and you're thinking, this is amazing. He says, we're going to speak wisdom to the mature, and we have things to say, spiritual things that must be spoken to spiritual people. And he gets them all revved up like, wow, what's he going to say? And then he gets to chapter three and he goes, but I couldn't talk to you like mature people because you're acting like a bunch of babies. What? And he says, here's why you're acting like a bunch of babies. You're acting like a bunch of babies because you're fighting amongst each other and you're picking favorite preachers and you're picking your favorite groups and you've divided yourself into factions and you think you're more spiritual because you belong to this faction instead of that one. But in truth, you're all showing your immaturity. And God has things to reveal to you that he can't reveal to you until you grow up. And when he gets to chapter 3, he says, some of you say you're of Paul. Some of you say you're of Cephas. Some of you say I'm of Apollos. Some of you say I'm of Jesus. We talked about this last week. But he says, in reality, who are we? In fact, he says, what are we? We're just servants. I want to read that to you real quick. And I want to show you what he says. 
He says, what is, what is Paul? What's Apollos? What, what are we? He says, we're just servants who uh, brought something to you. He said, in, in this case, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And then he says this in verse 16. He says, and this is 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, don't you know? Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And the Holy Spirit dwells in you. The Spirit of God dwells in you. Now listen, he says, he uses this analogy twice. The first time he uses it, he says, you plural, you guys. Don't you guys know that you're the temple? You plural are the temple of God. Later in the, in the book, he says, you personally are the temple of God. That's why you honor God with your body. But here he's talking about us as the church. We are the temple and the Spirit of God dwells in this temple. So then he says... If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So he's talking to people that are causing, going out of their way to cause division, spreading rumors, doing all this stuff, and, and, and building their factions, and excluding some, and including others. And he says, you're destroying the temple. And he says, it's holy. You should treat it as holy. Let no man deceive himself if any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age. He must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise that they are useless. <sighs> so then let no one boast in men. For all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. Can you just imagine that statement for a minute? He says, everything that's ever been created, all things belong to you. Even things that don't exist yet. Even the future belongs to you. That only makes sense when you listen to the next part. All things belong to you. And he included himself in the things that belong to these guys. He says, I belong to you. Paul, uh, you know, Cephas belongs to you. Apollos belongs to you. He says, all things belong to you. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. So while saying all things belong to you sounds like the most puffed up thing you could say, it suddenly becomes the most humble thing you can say when you say, we belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. You see how Paul puts himself in that picture? He goes, what are we? We're nothing. And at the same time, we're everything. Because we're found in him. All of our value is from him. He says, your value doesn't come from whether Peter baptized you or Apollos baptized you. Your, your value doesn't come to which church you're attending. He says, your value comes from Christ. So if you're boasting in people, you're missing the point. And there's this great statement of everything in the world, including me, belongs to you. But that only makes sense when you realize you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So you see, if we really could get this, if we really could value this like, God, like Jesus does, like Paul did here, then we would have a lot less fights. We would have a lot less strife. We would have a lot less issues if we just realized, hey, we all belong to Jesus here. Nobody's better than anybody else here. 
We don't need to puff ourselves up and make ourselves seem like something because our value has never come from us. Our value has always come from him. He gets on to them later because they've asked him to submit letters of commendation. They've asked him for recommendation letters. The guy that started their church, they're now asking, can you send some, can you send your resume? Because we've had some apostles say that you need to, you need to have, you know, some papers. And he goes, you guys are our letter. He says, you want me to get, he said, you want me to commend myself? He says, those that commend themselves and compare themselves to other people, he says, they're not wise. He says, I'm the only reason I'm qualified is for, because of Christ. He says, if you want to look at my, my resume, you're my resume. <laughs> unless we, he says, unless I've just been preaching in vain, you're the resume. God's been writing his letter through you and he used me. This is a valuable thing because now I bring it, we bring it back to that idea of what God is promising you is amazing. He's promising you a, 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 that you belong to him. He's promising that you belong in his city, that you have a place to belong. You belong to him. You have a place to belong. And now you have a name that's much bigger than your name. You have meaning. You have a purpose. You have identity in Christ. I love in Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, he says, let's put on the new self. He said, this is a new self that is being renewed according to the image of the one who created us. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek, Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and Christ is in all. You can imagine the kind of church services you would have when you bring Jews and Greeks together already you've got strife. Because the Greeks are intellectually arrogant and the Jews are religiously arrogant. So the Jews think we know the right way to worship God and the Greeks say, you guys don't know how to reason. You don't know how to explain something. You really don't have wisdom like we have. And they're both leveled when they get in the same room and then you've got some people that maybe came from money, maybe have some servants and then they walk into church and a slave is sitting there and you say, ooh, they let slaves sit with the rest of us? And they say a prayer and then that slave you were looking at gets up and he walks to the front and he says, today I'll be teaching you from and you go, a slave is teaching me something? Well, that slave is not a slave in here. Christ is all. And Christ is in all. Barbarians are allowed to come to my church now. Barbarians. Now it's funny. Do you know where the word barbarian comes from? It actually comes from the Romans. The, the way that they, they saw. And the Greeks too. They saw everybody outside of the empire. As just horribly uncivilized. And their language is uncouth and gross and rough. And they just. They, this was a mocking of their language. That it sounded like they are saying. Bar, 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 bar. Because they're, they're just not slick. They don't speak Latin. They don't speak Greek. They have these ugly languages. And they're ugly people. And they're barbarians. Even like a civilization like Carthage that, that was a grand, rich civilization. They called them barbarians. These guys are barbarians. Well, you guys know at the end of the story, originally, eventually the barbarians took over, burned the city down. 
I come from the line of barbarians, you know, I'm there. But then he says, Scythians, I got, a, I got my uh, her, uh, histories by Herodotus. And, and he talks about the Scythians, and these guys were gross. These guys were weird. If barbarians were bad, Scythians were worse. Like you read the stories of these guys and you go, oh, heaven. I mean, man, I wouldn't want these guys walking into my church without wiping the shoes off at least. Some of these guys, like I, I read a story of a king, you know, the kings at, of those days uh, that would, that would uh, use their enemy's skulls as a decorative mug. Can you imagine that guy coming to your church now? And we sit down and we eat together. And we pray together and we worship together. And he says, now there's no distinction between all of you. Slave and free, barbarian, Scythian, Greek and Jew. Why? Because Christ is all. And Christ is in all. One paraphrase says, everyone is defined by Christ. Everyone is included in Christ. You came into church thinking you were better than this person. But when you say, I belong to God and God, or, I belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God, there's no reason I'm any better than you. And all of a sudden, we find our identity. Remember, he says you have to put on the new self. It's being renewed. You, you are being renewed to the image of the one who created you. When we put on that identity, I have to take off the other identity. Right? Because we still want to belong. You know what our problem in North America is? We want to belong to Jesus. We want to belong to the idea of the followers of Jesus. But we really don't want to be kicked out of our other clubs too. I want to belong here, but I want to belong everywhere else too. So I would prefer if my coworkers not think I'm weird. I would really like it if my kids can go to school and not be the odd one out. I really don't want to be the freak that everybody says, you know what those guys believe? We want to be acceptable to them. We want to be admired. We want to be received. But you know, there's times where you have to draw a line in the sand and say what Paul said in Galatians. If I was trying to please people, I couldn't be a servant of Jesus. Now he's not talking about his fellow Christians because if he was, then he couldn't have said in Philippians, we should please one another and not please ourselves. He's talking about the world. Because if I'm trying to please these people, I could never be a servant of Jesus. I got to at some point say, the fear of people is a snare, but the fear of God leads to life. It's the beginning of wisdom. Why is the fear of people a snare? Are you afraid they're going to bash their head in? Have you ever, ever really been afraid that the government's going to kill you for your faith? This government? No, they, they may take away your summer funding, but they're not going to chop your head off. As far as I know. It's not happening. It's happening in other parts of the world, for sure. It's not happening here. What are we really afraid of? Christians in Canada aren't afraid uh, that our government's going to execute us at sundown. Uh, Christians in Canada are afraid that we're going to be pushed to the edges. We don't want to be pushed to the edges. We want to be respected. We want to be received. But you know why? It's because it's an insecurity about where we belong. We're still trying to belong in two worlds. We're still trying to belong to this and that at the same time. But if you really just say, I belong to Christ, I belong to him, you would realize that that is a far better place to belong than anything else. That would be the only thing that matters. Then you're okay if people like you and you're okay if they don't like you because I know where I belong. I'm married now. I love my wife. 
I really don't, I, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, you can believe me if you want, but I, I say this with no sense of irony, with no, no regret. I honestly don't care if any other woman in the world finds me attractive. I don't care. I wouldn't know it if they did. I know my wife likes me. That's all I care now. I'm married to her. She's the one that matters. So you know what? When I get dressed, I, I dress myself. Thank God I'm a big boy, you know. <laughs> but I ask her, Tia, does this look good? Why? She's the one that has to look at me. I'm only going to look at the mirror like once or twice. <laughs> and I don't care if anyone else likes it. If my wife likes it, I'm happy. See, when you value who you are in Christ, then what matters is, am I pleasing to him? And if so, I'm good with this. When I belong to the people of God, then I want to fit with them rather than fit with the world. Remember what, what Peter wrote? He said, you are a living stone that, that's made to fit with other living stones, right? Sometimes that's painful. You're like, I don't feel like I fit. I don't want to fit. Well, sometimes, you know, when you're, <laughs> the people that are building these old structures where the stone fits with another stone, right? When the stone fits with the other stone, they're not spending 15 hours trying to find the perfect stone that fits with this. Sometimes they got to grind that stone down until it fits. And sometimes, like it or not, you're not going to fit with everybody until you allow Jesus to to rub off some edges and to kind of make you fit. But he'll fit you where you need to fit. But then, what does he say? He says, with Jesus as our cornerstone. You know, the cornerstone is the... Stone that gives all the other stones their place. It's the stone where you orient yourself and you say, as long as I line up, that's that's the one thing that's not moving. That's the one that's supposed to stay. So if I'm lined up with Jesus, he's the cornerstone. that We're all going to fit together, but we're all going to fit together when we fit with him. Just like I'm a body part and I fit with the body when I'm connected to the head. Then I work together with everybody else. So our sense of belonging, we belong to a family, we belong to a, we're part of a building, we're part of a body, we're not meant to be alone, we're meant to be together, but we find our meaning and our place from him. And if we really got that, if we really valued that, because think about this, it's used throughout the New Testament, there's one time where he says, Here's the promise. I will live with you. I will walk among you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'll be a father to you. You'll be my kids. He says, therefore, having these promises, come out from among them and be separate and touch not what is unclean. So he gave you a promise. I'm going to live with you. You'll be my people. I'll live in your camp. Now, don't be afraid to be different than everybody else because you have a promise that you're going to be like me. He says in Hebrews to the Jewish people who experienced much the same thing that we read about in Philadelphia. They were kicked out of their families, kicked out of their synagogues, kicked out of their culture. He says, Jesus went outside the camp for you, bearing your reproach. So let's bear his reproach and go outside the camp to meet him. He's talking to a group of people who are finding it hard to let go of their families, finding it hard not to fit into their culture. He says, you know, don't think so much about not fitting with them. Think more about the fact that now you fit with me. You belong to me. If I really, if I really valued that, and this goes right back to the first thing I said, 
I want to value the things that Jesus values. And if Jesus says, this is the great reward, I'll put three names on you. The name of my God, the name of my city, and my new name. If those are as valuable as he seems to make them out to be, then I want to value it more than anything else. I want to see that as the prize that I belong to him. I belong to God, I belong in his city, and I belong to Christ himself. And when you have that sense of belonging, it chases insecurity out. It chases wishy-washy lukewarmness out, doesn't it? What does lukewarmness come from? Wanting to be hot and cold at the same time. But when you're just thrilled to be with Christ, You're not trying to live in two different worlds. You're not trying to live two different identities. You're not an undercover Christian because you know, hey, the only person I really, the the only, the only opinion I'm seeking, the only place I find value is in Christ. So that's what matters to me. And listen, this was enough to give hope to a church that had got kicked out of their families and their synagogue and all the things they thought were important. It's enough for us too. It's value. You belong somewhere. You fit. You were made to belong. Find that place in Christ. Value that. Value that name that you've been given. If you're like I was and you read this and go, that doesn't sound like much of a reward. Honestly, I wish he had said something far more practical. Well, maybe you're a little too hung up on the things of the world rather than the more valuable things, which are the unseen things. And that's okay. We've all been there. But when you value the eternal things, even the present seen things take on new meaning and new value. I want you to know your value in Christ. It'll take the insecurity. It'll give you security in him. You'll say, my life is hidden in him. It'll also get rid of a lot of the fights we have, a lot of the struggles to belong, a lot of the, 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 the wondering, where do I fit when you know you fit in him? Everything else in your life makes sense. Everything in your life will make sense if you can get this right. I belong to him. I belong to him. That was how Jesus went through life. People could say the weirdest things, the rudest things, the, the craziest things. They accused his mom of, having, uh, of committing fornication to have him. They accused him of having a demon. And they accused him of being a Samaritan, which wasn't a big deal to Jesus. But to them, they were very racist. This was a big deal. None of these things fazed him. Why? Because I'm from my father. Everything he was sprung out of that. Your life will make a lot more sense when you can get that right. Thank God. I want to be like the church in Philadelphia and see that as a reward, not just glaze over it and go, okay, I guess when I get to the sweet by and by, he's going to, put, he's going to write some stuff on my forehead. Now that you, that you see your value in, I belong to him. Everything I am is wrapped up in that, and that has great value. Don't let anyone tell you you don't have value. You have more value than anything that's ever been created Because he was willing to pay the ultimate price for you. He bought you with his own blood. You're valuable. Because his blood's worth a lot. Find your place in that. Amen. Stand with me. Let's pray together.